Welcome to Friendly Words, the sermon podcast of Pratt Friends Church in Pratt, Kansas. The message you're about to hear was originally preached for Pratt Friends Church online on Sunday, September 12, 2021. It focuses on Jesus' journey toward death. The message to all who will listen is God's will is going to be done even when man opposes it. Now, here is Pastor Mike Neifert. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that we can be together, even if it's just virtually, and uh, we sense that your spirit's at work, and we want to hear your word, and so I pray today, God, that my words as they go out over the internet, that they would be an encouragement to those who hear them, and we're just thankful for your spirit's work, and we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So, at the end of July, my family and I traveled to Colorado to climb Mount Sherman. And we arrived at the trailhead around 7 o'clock a.m. after a two-hour drive from the Denver area. And we were ready to get out of the car and uh, get our legs loosened up for the hike. So once everybody had their gear in place, we stepped out onto the trail. And to be completely honest, we got a little lost. There was a secondary trail right there at the trailhead that went down the mountain. We figured that out pretty quickly, that we were going the wrong direction. We looked around a little bit and spotted this trail zigzagging up the mountain. I thought, okay, so that must be the real trail. How do we get there? We had to backtrack a little bit. We got back up to the trailhead, looked around and said, oh, look, there's a little gap in the shrubbery here that goes down across this little marshy area, and that's how you get to the trail. So. A few hours later, we made the summit, tired but happy to be there. We snooped around a bit, enjoyed a visit from a trio of mountain goats. The baby goat was very cute. Then we headed back down toward our parked cars. And on the descent, several in the group started wearing down. We'd been on our feet for four to five hours, and the altitude can make even simple movements more difficult and more painful. And so one of my nephews was among those who was struggling. He needed more and more frequent rest breaks, and so I offered to carry his pack for him and urged him to stay on the path. You see, he'd been taking shortcuts all the way up and continued this practice on the way down. The problem with these spontaneous routes on a mountain is that they're often steeper, and steeper means harder, and harder means you're going to get tired faster. So when I picked up my nephew's backpack, taking its weight on my back, I immediately asked, what's in this thing? It was rocks. Now, food is useful in a backpack, water's a necessity, but rocks, I carried them for him, but only because they meant a lot to him. Rocks are never my preferred cargo on a long hike. Obviously, we made it down the mountain, I handed off the rocks to their rightful owner and we drove back down to my brother's house tired but happy. The last few days of Jesus' earthly life were a lot like the up and downs and the difficulties on a mountain and we're going to see that as we finish up Jesus' life here in a few weeks. There are happenings in Jesus' last few days that had to have brought him comfort and maybe even a little joy but there are other things that caused grief and probably a lot of pain, both physically and emotionally. Man, he's a human being and he had to deal with things just like you and I do. And here's the thing, on top of the fact that he's a human experiencing all these things, he's also God and he knows exactly what's coming. 
We're going to see that as we begin Matthew chapter 26. If you got a Bible, you can go find that. We're going to be in Matthew 26 all morning. And so uh, he knew exactly what was coming, as I said, and he still kept moving forward up and down and up and down and up and down. And then the long downward journey, which ended in the grave. And so we're going to talk about that. Here's the question first, though. Why did Jesus keep going forward when he knew that his final destination was an agonizing death? The writer of Hebrews gives us some insight. I love this passage. I've read it numerous times. Let me read it again. This is Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. If you got your Bible, keep it in Matthew 26. We are going to get there. And so let's read what's written in Hebrews 12, 1 to 3, and see what we can learn about Jesus and why he kept moving forward even though he knew death was coming. The chapter begins with these words, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Joy is what motivated Jesus to take that step after step after step toward Jerusalem where he knew he was going to be crucified, the place he was going to be nailed to a tree and then die. He knew his death and subsequent resurrection would bring about the salvation of all who were going to believe in him. To bring about this good end, he was willing to go and carry the load of sin upon his back so that we could be free to journey toward God. We're going to spend at least two weeks walking along with Jesus as he approaches Jerusalem, enters it, and endures so much for us. The first part of the journey is full of ups and downs. The final leg, what happens after what we're going to cover today, is all downhill to the tomb. Of course, the grave is not the final stop in life. It's just a waypoint. The best parts come afterwards. Well, we're ready to take on the first few words about Jesus' up and down trip toward the cemetery. And we're going to start in Matthew 26 at verse 1. Here's what Matthew first says of Jesus' trek towards certain death. And I'm reading verses 1 through 5. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, As you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Verse 3. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, for there may be a riot among the people. This is an interesting juxtaposition. Jesus says, I'm going to die in Jerusalem during the Passover. The religious leaders plotting to kill him. We find out their private conversation. They say he's got to die, but not during the festival. We're not going to get to the death of Jesus today. That'll be when we get to the end of chapter 27. But I'll give you three guesses whose words accurately predict what's going to take place. And the first two don't count. It's Jesus. Jesus is the one who knows what's coming up. He knows that he's going to be nailed to the cross. The religious leaders want him dead, but not if there's going to be a riot, not if there's going to be an uproar. They just want to be sneaky and, and murder him in the dark with no one knowing. God's will is that Jesus is going to die during Passover, I think for a very specific reason. 
to show clearly that Jesus is the Savior of the world, the one whose blood, like the Passover lamb, is going to rescue people from death. And God wants to make sure we get the connection, and so he makes this happen. Even though this is a bit of a downward trek for Jesus, these steps are part of the journey which brings us salvation. If Jesus doesn't die, we have no hope. Thank God we have hope. The religious leaders didn't want to risk doing Jesus in during a major holiday, but God made it happen so that we'd know that we have the promised freedom from sin that Jesus died to buy. Our God will not be thwarted. The next section of Matthew 26 is a bit more upward in the journey. In verses 6 through 13, a woman worships Jesus in a rather unusual and costly way. Let's see what she does and how everybody around her reacts. This is verses 6 through 13, Matthew 26, 6 through 13. While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Again, Jesus knows where he's going. Verse 13, Truly I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. The disciples the guys who had been with Jesus for at least three years think that they can point to this woman's wastefulness, but they can't. Jesus rebukes them, says she's done a beautiful thing, and we in every other church remember her actions and commend them every time this passage is read. We look at the disciples and think, man, how did they get this so wrong? It's obvious that this is a great way to worship God. From time to time, I've caught myself shaking my head at the way other people worship God, the way that they act in worship. I've said in my head, why can't they do it right? Dumb, 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 dumb. Am I able to rightly judge the rightness or wrongness of another person's worship or their giving or their service to Jesus in any way? Are you? The correct answer is no. Jesus said it plainly enough. Matthew 7, 1, do not judge or you too will be judged. And didn't he warn us in the next verse, Matthew 7, 2, for in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. If you're judging somebody else for the way that they worship or give or serve, you're doing the wrong thing. And the measure that you use will be used against you. And God will say, you know what? You're not getting everything right either. And I think that his opinion is going to be a little bit more trouble for you than somebody else's. What should you do when somebody's worshiping or giving or serving in a way that you find either off-putting or just a little weird? You should pray for them. You should ask God to bless them. You should thank God that they're offering themselves to him. Then you should worship and give and serve God with all of your heart and all of your soul and mind and strength, focusing on his glory, pointing people to him rather than wagging your head at a brother or sister who does things differently. Listen, every bit of worship and giving and service which is offered to God with a heart full of love for Jesus by a believer is a beautiful thing to God. 
He loves it, accepts it, do what God loves and accepts and watch in amazement at others do the same thing in strange and mysterious ways. <laughs> it's who is being worshipped, not how, that matters. Worship Jesus, honor the Father, submit to the Spirit in all things. Got it? All right, let's move on. Jesus bolstered in his spirit by this woman's worship, this extravagant act of worship that prepared his body for burial. That's what he said. He moves on. And we're still in Matthew 26. I'm reading verses 14 through 16. Here's what it says. Then one of the 12, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Talk about a steep descent. One minute, Jesus is shown great respect by a woman. The next, a very close friend, one of the 12, is meeting with the guys who are plotting to do him in and offering assistance to them in nabbing Jesus when no one's around and can put up a fuss. This is more than the priests and the elders could have hoped for. They didn't dream ever that that was going to happen. So for a few silver coins, they have access to insider knowledge about Jesus' whereabouts. A special ops grab him and snab him and slab him. Nighttime operation and their troubles will be over. I imagine that this is the scenario that they see in their heads. But it's not what God's going to bring about. Jesus had predicted a crucifixion and the Roman governor is going to have to be brought in for that to happen. Judas's behind the scenes maneuvering is how God's plan and not man's plan is going to come out. We said it earlier. Jesus says it's going to happen during the Passover. They say not during the festival. Who's going to win? It's God's will that's always going to happen. God's will is always perfect, but more often than we'd like it to be, it's difficult. Sometimes the struggles that we're facing make no sense at all to us. We don't like them. We want God to fix them. We trust him, but maybe not as fully as we want to trust him. It's hard to have faith when life is not smooth sailing. Are you facing circumstances which require faith? God will see you through them. He'll be with you in the valley of the shadow of death. Let him give you peace and comfort and strength for the day. He will accomplish his purposes in and through you as you follow him. This is true even if you die in the process of obeying. The plan of God continues to unfold in Matthew's record of Jesus' life. As it moves from event to event, step by step, he goes to Jerusalem. Here's what's the next little bit in his trek toward death. We find it in verses 17 through 30. A little bit longer section here, so listen up. Starting at verse 17. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, that's the Passover, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, go to the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says, my appointed time is near. I am going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. Verse 20, when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him one after another, surely you don't mean me, Lord. Jesus replied, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. 
The Son of Man will go just as it's written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Verse 25, Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. Jesus answered, You have said so. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Celebration and sadness mingle on this night. Remembering God's rescue from Egypt blesses, betrayal disturbs, feasting brings joy, recognizing death's soon arrival grieves, the broken bread predicts the pain to come, the wine points to the blood which will bring forgiveness. Up and down and up and down and up and down and up and down. The thought of it makes a man tired. It's wearing on the body, isn't it? And on the soul when life flits back and forth from mourning to dancing. Jesus, fully man at the same time he's fully God, must have felt a little of the strain that we feel. Physically, he must have been at least a bit down on the energy side of things. Emotionally, he must have been exhausted, leaning fully on his father to see him to the end of this roller coaster ride. I am thankful that Jesus went through this for me and for you, for the whole world. Because he endured, I can have forgiveness. His dependence on the Father sets an example for me and for you. When, when I'm stressed out, I can follow his example and turn everything over to God. I can celebrate and sing a hymn when life is a bit chaotic because Jesus willingly marched toward death and died in my place. Now, lest we focus only on the human reaction of Jesus to struggle, let me talk about this new covenant, this covenant in his blood which he talks about. It's a covenant in which he says, my side of things is to pay the price for spiritual freedom. I will shed my blood for you and die on the cross for you so that your sins can be forgiven and you can be made right with God. And all you contribute to it is faith in me. Nothing else. This is Paul's message in Romans. Paul didn't even really know Jesus during his lifetime. He met him on the road to Damascus in a vision when he was persecuting the church. But he understood this. And so in Romans chapter 3, we're going to start at verse 19. If you want to turn there, we're going to go 19 through 26. There are so many verses here that talk about this righteousness that we have through faith in Jesus. And so I want to make sure that we get this. If we were to read the whole chapter, we'll get more of the same. But we're going to read verses 19 to 26 as a representative. I encourage you to read the whole chapter later to Find out about this righteousness that comes to us by faith in Jesus. It's the good news. For now, here's what Paul wrote in verses 19 through 26. Romans 3, 19 to 26 starts with this. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. 
There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Each and every person on planet Earth is accountable to God for sin. And all has sinned. So no one's going to be able to say, I'm good. We all need God to justify us or we are absolutely sunk. Jesus, by his death on the cross, made justification possible. We can be made righteous by God if we put our faith in his son, Jesus. Jesus has done, did, he's got all the work taken care of. We have only to trust him for salvation, the salvation that is offered to us by God's grace. If you want to be saved, you enter into this covenant through faith in Jesus. Submit yourself to God and serve Jesus with the Spirit's power for the rest of your days. That's the evidence that God's gotten a hold of you is what you do, the good works that he created you to do when he saved you. So keep following him. I love it that you and I were together in this new covenant. We are saved by faith in Jesus, justified by God, made righteous, and we get to live out this faith in community. The church is God's gift to the world, his gift to believers. Before we move on, think of all your believing friends. Aren't you glad that these friends are part of the believing community? Aren't you glad that you get to follow Jesus with people, with other people? And not just the people here at Pratt Friends, but other people in our community who love Jesus and follow him. I want you to take just a moment to thank God for your brothers and sisters in Christ. I'll give you just a second, and let's just give thanks to God for the church that he created by sending Jesus to save us. God, thanks for sending Jesus to redeem people, to rescue people from sin. So grateful for that, and I pray, God, that you would bless each person who's hearing today, those who maybe tune in later, maybe catch this sermon on our podcast, whatever. Whoever hears these words, I pray that your blessing would be upon your church and upon your people, and that together we would serve you. God, send out workers, compel them into the harvest fields, because we know that they're ripe, and give us opportunities this week to serve together with your people, wherever you're at work. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, next section. I'm going to read Matthew 26, 31 to 35 now. Here's what he says. Then Jesus told them, this very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Verse 32, but after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the disciples said the same. Jesus states clearly, all of you are going to abandon me tonight. All means all. When it goes down, they're all going to run. Jesus is going to be alone. He doesn't seem frustrated by this. His words are pretty matter of fact. He even suggests this desertion is further proof that he's the Messiah. 
their fearful flight will fulfill foretold facts. He states the facts. You're all going to leave. And then he predicts a reunion after death. They're going to all be back together. Peter completely misses this last part. Ignores Jesus' words about resurrection and defies Jesus' proclamation. Jesus says, y'all are going to scatter. Peter says, those losers might jump ship, but not me. I'm in it to the end, even if it means my death. I can relate to Peter. I think my faith is strong enough. I could face death if push came to shove, if it was illegal to proclaim Christ, or if claiming Christ as Lord was punishable by some horrendous penalty. I'd want to say I'm with Jesus no matter what, but my flesh, it gets in the way of doing the right thing a lot of times in far less difficult circumstances and prompts wrong actions too. I need the Spirit's help. I cannot overcome my impulse towards self-preservation unless the Spirit of God helps me, and I know He will help. God help us all. God help those who are actually facing life and death persecution around the globe now. They're the ones who are right now living out, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And I'm so grateful. I'm looking forward to meeting those people and thanking them for their faithfulness. And I know God honors their faithfulness too with eternal life, without pain, without death, without mourning. We're going to stop right here in Matthew 26. I know it's a bit of a cliffhanger. The good news though, we're not done with chapter 26. This chapter and the next chapter 27 are important enough. We're going to take whatever time is necessary to cover every single section of these chapters. Next Sunday, we're going to pick up at verse 36 and go as far as we can. Perhaps we'll finish off chapter 27. Perhaps we'll need another week. I don't know until I write, but we're going to get together and we're going to continue on this journey that Jesus is taking toward the cross. The rest of it's downhill. There's not a lot of good things that happen throughout the next bits of scripture, but the end result the reason Jesus could keep going was because of the joy that was going to happen, because he was going to bring about the salvation of those who would believe. Just let me recap real quickly our message today. God's will is going to get done, period. When his enemies' plans oppose his, God's plans will come to pass. We saw that when he said, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to die at Passover, and the chief priests and elders said, nah, we'll kill him, but not during the festival. And we know that his prediction came true. So God's will is going to be done. You can trust him even when his enemies' plans oppose his. He's going to do it. Another thing we learned is not to judge other people's worship or giving or service. We need to make sure there's no judginess in our hearts. So ask God to root that judginess off and bless others as they worship, as they do his will, as they follow him, as they give. And just be thankful that you get to be together with them, even if they're a little weird. God's will, which is going to be done, is not going to be good at all times. Not in human terms, anyway. God often allows struggle in our lives, difficult things. So the question is, will you trust God even when things are kind of crummy? And then we're invited into this new covenant through faith in Jesus. This new covenant that he predicted would be purchased with his blood, the forgiveness that comes for sin for those who believe, 
And so I ask you, as I often do, are you saved? Have you put your faith in Jesus and his blood to save you? There is no other way. You can't be good enough. You can't work up enough stuff. We read earlier from Romans that no one's going to be justified by doing the things that the law says. The law just tells us that we're messed up. The law convicts us of sin, shows us that we're sinful. And it's only faith in Jesus that can bring about salvation. So are you saved? Have you put your faith in him? Or are you trying to do it by being good? It's not going to work. Keep putting your faith in Jesus. And finally, we have to deal with our flesh when it comes to following Jesus. And so the question is this, will you submit your flesh to God and walk humbly in step with his spirit? That is the only way to be a Jesus follower. There's probably one or two or more lessons that you can learn from this passage as you watch Jesus walking toward his death as he takes this journey toward the tomb. Will you submit your flesh to him and walk with him? Will you listen as the spirit guides you right now uh, listening, but also in the weeks to come and the months to come. Are you going to follow him throughout your life? I'm going to pray for you. And then as I play a quiet song about waiting to God, I'm going to allow you some silent time to pray on your own. So let's worship the Lord together and honor him. The scripture that this song is based on is Psalm 130, verses 5 through 7. Maybe you want to look that up and meditate on that as I'm playing as well. I encourage you to listen to God and to honor him as I'm singing.
words are from Psalm 130, verses 5 to 7. Let's wait together on the Lord. thank you that you love us and care for us and that when we wait upon you, you hear us. And God, help us to trust you even when things are a little wacky. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Once again, the words from Hebrews that I read earlier, verses 1 to 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. We hope you have been encouraged and challenged by today's sermon. If you want to hear each week's message, be sure to subscribe to Friendly Words in your podcast app. 
May God bless you as you follow Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit.